Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and as always here with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Yeah, guess who's here? It's me. Absolutely. Uh, fabulous again. I, I, I just I'm horrified at sounding like this. It's awesome. And, uh, you know, I'm so excited. <laughs> but it, it is. It's always exciting every time we do this. And uh, so we're going across and we're going to talk to someone who's amalgamating a couple of things that I find incredibly interesting. The uh, polyvagal, which we've talked about and we'll be talking with uh, Steve Porges in a, uh, a little while. And the uh, trauma relieving practice of EMDR. And we've got this fabulous person who's looked at a way at the ways in which these are uh, naturally integrated. Now, yeah. who have we got, Matt? Yeah, so we're going to go and talk to Rebecca Case. Now, she's a licensed clinical social worker in Washington State. She's an EMDR consultant and trainer who has been practicing EMDR since 2006. And she owns Rebecca Case & Co., which is a training and consultation firm. And uh, she also has her own private practice. And a fabulous book, which is Polyvagal Informed EMDR. And it's got some uh, beautiful subtitle, which uh, I haven't got in front of me. But the essence of it is, is she's put this down in writing and we want to figure out what she's talking about and want to hear what the process was of how she brought these two things together. Fantastic. Now, look, if you do enjoy what we're doing here at the Science of Psychotherapy please jump across to the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. That's our academy site. Uh, become a member. Try us out for a month and uh, see if you like uh, all the content that we have there. We would love to have you as part of the tribe. Absolutely. And you can grab the certificates for many of the courses and uh, that will be wonderful. You're wonderfully educated. And here is a part of this wonderful learning experience where we talk to Rebecca Case over in the good old USA. Rebecca, hello and welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy. It's so great to meet you. Hey, it's so good to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for sharing space with me. Uh, great pleasure. And Richard here. So uh, it, it's wonderful to meet you. We we were we were just as we, in our pre-talk, we were just sort of um, thinking about how quickly we uh, we can become familiar, and as therapists we do. But this online space, we're getting pretty used to it now. I think as 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 people and connecting well. But here we are. We've you've done this fabulous book uh, that's talking about uh, relating the ideas and and theoretical frameworks of polyvagal with the, the the practical application of the EMDR and you've brought these two together and, and what on earth uh, I suppose led you to do that how did you get to this point in in your uh, in your fabulous uh, professional and 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 thinking life yes so I got trained in EMDR way back in 2006 so I've been an EMDR nerd nut junkie for many years at this point big believer in EMDR. And I started to dive into polyvagal theory probably around 2017 or so, and was really enjoying, you know, reading books and taking some trainings with Stephen Porges. And then the pandemic hit and diving into polyvagal theory and exploring how it integrates with EMDR kind of became my pandemic project. So I have friends who did a do-it-yourself camper and redid their, their kitchen, and I sat down and immersed myself in neuroscience. That was my way to distract 
from everything that was happening in 2020. So. There's some great stories of this sort of thing, Rebecca. I remember the um, the the, uh, the idea of a meme, which was, um, oh, dear, now I'm going to forget the, the, the name of the author. But she got very ill. And so she said, well, I got nothing else to do. She was in a hospital. So she read everything about it. And after that was the Richard Dawkins idea, she did that. Uh, Matt and I, we wrote a, a book during yeah. um, uh, during the thing. So, so well done. Good use of time. Uh, you yeah. can, we can do our kitchen any old day. Um, so, so this this idea. I mean, we're great advocates, uh, Matt and I. We we try and talk. It it's about bringing all these these uh, differentiated ideas and and thinkings back into the the framework of where they came from, which is the human being. Um, I mean, the fact that you know you find the the the, the relationship between polyvagal and EMDR doesn't surprise us at all. Of course, it is. They came from the same place. But someone still needs to do the work. So, what was what was really um, the? Were there particular triggers, or did it something that that just emerged, or, or did it just become obvious? What was sort of that process of seeing the the beginning to pull, pull together the the connections between the two frameworks? Immersed in some consultation with Nancy Rubico, who is one of Deb Dana's consultants, amazing, amazing clinician, trained in polyvagal theory, EMDR, somatic experiencing. She is just a maverick. And she and I were just kind of hashing out some of my ideas and concepts. Pretty soon I found myself writing things, you know, down with just a lot of passion and just really that that kind of inner inner drive that you feel when you are really getting immersed in a creative project. And eventually it just felt like something just has to come out. I think I have heard other authors say this, that you write a book because there's something that just has to be said. And and you wouldn't write an academic book otherwise, probably, because it's not an easy thing to do. (laughs) You have many points along that journey that you just question, why did I do this? What am I doing? But It was really through my conversations and exploration and deep dive and starting to practice things with clients where I would bring in some of Deb Dana's polyvagal and form techniques, where I started exploring how does polyvagal theory intersect with the fidelity components of EMDR, how we activate memories, how we process memories. And as I was really starting to get this kind of in the moment data with clients and clients were just speeding through EMDR faster than ever before. They were sharing that they really enjoyed the interventions I was offering. Things were really powerful. Things were sticking. I then felt, oh my gosh, I just feel like I need to start sharing this information. So a a book was birthed (laughs) and born. (laughs) Fantastic. So um, let's drill down. So most of our listeners will be um, psychotherapists and and in in the therapy field. So I'm sure many of our listeners will be interested in um, drilling down to some of those some of those details. What were the unique um, kind of interventions in that that you came up with? Well, I've always been a very interpersonal and attuned therapist, and I think that the ways that we attune in counseling with our clients. Are, can can be of our own kind of personal style, you know, where we fall on, on the in the lens of disclosure. Do I disclose anything? Do I disclose a little bit? Do I do that intentionally? How do we practice EMDR? For those of you who are EMDR therapists, you probably know the feeling that EMDR can sometimes feel very rigid as a model um, versus 
How can we see the EMDR process as more of a structured model and not a rigid model? And so as I started to, to really understand the power of the social engagement system, which Stephen Porges just really emphasizes in polyvagal theory, how we're wired to connect and how connection is such an important part of healing for our nervous system. I was able to bring in that interpersonal focus, really rely on the social engagement system in EMDR therapy, which helped it lose some of its rigidity. All of a sudden, I found EMDR to be an even more flexible model. I could flow with my clients' nervous systems with more ease. I found that I could understand my therapeutic presence as an actual clinical intervention. And, you know, some of this wasn't new news to me. It's things that I think a lot of us kind of implicitly feel in the counseling space. But now I had neurobiology informing me, guiding me, and helping me to warm up EMDR therapy, which again, can just feel very stoic and feel like a prescription or an intervention and not an entire therapeutic model. So the interpersonal process was a big one. Learning to integrate mapping circuits, which Deb Dana talks about in her work, how to kind of map the nervous system and understand, how do I know when I'm in ventral? How do I know when I'm in sympathetic? How do I know when I'm in dorsal? That became a really useful component for psychoeducation when I'm working with clients in phase two of EMDR, which is all about preparation. And I was also able to weave that information into the reprocessing phases and use that awareness that my clients had of where they were landing in their nervous system as a tool for intervention and a way to help them continue to move through the memory. Uh, that's just so my, the music to my ears, just uh, listening to you. This, uh, what we talk about a lot is, um, uh, I mean, we're very keen uh, advocates of of learning and of knowledge and of uh, and of science and of the information, but as a springboard, always as a springboard um, and a, a, a deeper insight into the into the client and who they are. And I think what you've described uh, just as a, a, a sort of a, a sense of what was going on as you worked with the methodology of EMDR uh, it's a bit stoic it's a bit um it's a bit thing which is it it never was in the beginning and this is what happens once we uh, uh get stuck in the methodology we get we lose the humanity a bit and I think that's the most uh valuable thing about uh, polyvagal theory incredibly scientific but when you just actually uh pull away some of get you know, get through the science, go, okay, I accept it, I understand it, I've got it. Wow, doesn't this help me understand the human being? And of course, you understand yourself a lot better as well. So I'm imagining that there's a two-way thing where we're 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 attuning um with the client and their uh movements through the various phases, but also we're able to keep a check and understand our, our own, uh, because it's not easy working with trauma patients. Right. As, as I really gained this insight from polyvagal theory, I, I, for one, have always been a big proponent of self-care. Self-care is a billion-dollar industry. It can trigger, you know, eye rolls and deep sighs of, oh, that's about money and wealth and privilege and go take a vacation or get a massage. But polyvagal theory, I think, really helps us understand not only the power of the human relationship as the most important factor in therapy, which we already know that. Research has said that time and time again. But 
if I'm going to show up and use my nervous system for good in the counseling relationship, it better be in good shape. And this is where self-care comes in. Polyvagal theory, I believe, helps us to reframe self-care as an ethical imperative as a therapist, because my greatest clinical instrument is my nervous system, because it allows me to connect. It offers my client a pathway to regulation when they get dysregulated in the session or they walk in dysregulated in the session. But the only way I can show up and use my nervous system in that way for good is if I'm doing my due diligence to care for my neurobiology. So all of a sudden, I feel that that helps us to reframe self-care is really intentional self-regulation time. And can you all imagine the world we would be in if everybody just took 10 minutes a day to intentionally self-regulate? Things would be radically different, right? Yeah, yeah. Er, Ernie Rossi and I have been talking about that. What we call the ultradian pause. It's a, it's actually a part of a natural rhythm. We won't, it will keep stuck on you at the moment. But this, this natural rhythms which we built in culturally into uh, uh, meal times. Uh, we take mm. these natural pauses, but we've even knocked those social, um, calming, uh, re-engaging experiences and made them rushed fast, you know, get through it so I can work harder stuff. Yeah. But um, anyway, Matt, I... I, I well, well, I was just thinking even within, you know, therapy itself, what you've done, because we can learn a technique, we can we can learn a, a therapeutic technique and it can become mechanical and, and rote mm-hmm. and, and we can get sort of burnt out. But what you've, you know, you've been exploring, what you've been doing, bringing that, you know, social engagement system into the mix and being, you know, warming it up, as you said, um, I think that in itself for the therapist is also self-care because you're um, you're doing something for yourself as well. Uh, curiosity would be mixed into that, um, which also would, you know, be beneficial to the therapist as well as to the client. Um, I, so I've just been jotting down a few things that have come to mind as you've been talking. And um, one of the things was um, memory reconsolidation. Have you looked at that in terms of um, what's happening uh, with EMDR and polyvagal theory and in transformative change? Yes. So EMDR is a memory-based therapy. We focus completely on the storage of memory and how that leads to symptoms and pathologies or health and wellness. And when we bring in polyvagal theory, I believe it helps us to have a comprehensive model within the EMDR framework because you don't just think your memories, you feel your memories. And you feel your memories through those autonomic processes that memories can activate. And so when we think about memory consolidate, reconsolidation and polyvagal theory, we go into a deep dive there. So maybe a couple of helpful t- takeaways. But we know that a memory is what we call an EMDR maladaptively stored. So a maladaptively stored memory is one that's stuck and causing yuck is my language. When it gets activated, like that's the basis of trauma stuff, right? Like these memories get activated and they cause a reaction in my neurobiology. What those memories are activating are those autonomic defensive survival states. And EMDR doesn't explain that process at all. It completely focuses on the storage of memory and how to process maladaptively stored memories a point that now they're adaptive, but it's never explained, well, how do you know it's reconsolidated? What is it that's causing the distress? What does it mean? Like what actually happens in your body when a memory is adaptively consolidated? And that's where polyvagal theory comes in. 
we know a memory is maladaptively stored because it will lead to activation of sympathetic or dorsal defensive states when it's triggered. We know a memory is adaptively stored because when you think about it, you can think about it from that ventral window of tolerance. And so that knowledge alone can help guide therapists to identify what seem to be the memories that we need to be addressing. What are the memories that are driving symptoms? Then how do I know the memory is resolved? I was just working with a client today. We've actually been in the midst of a pretty big EMDR treatment plan on childhood trauma and abuse. And um, I haven't seen her for a couple of weeks because she got she got really sick. She got strep throat, so we had to cancel. And then I saw her today. It's been about three weeks since our last EMDR session, which she did fantastic in. She's flying through her targets. She said, I was in a car accident. And she was so upset and she was so activated about it. She's like, I'm sweating when I talk about it. That sympathetic arousal, right? That sweating response. I'm so agitated. I'm so irritable. I've just been so short. My pain has increased. She struggles with a lot of chronic pain issues. So I just said, would you like to do some EMDR on that? She said, sure. So we used a recent event protocol from EMDR and we processed the worst part of the car accident. It was actually her and her partner and they hit, they spun out in some rain and they hit each other. And so she was terrified when she was barreling towards him that she was going to kill him. And so we started out processing the worst part of that memory, which was that moment. And within 10 minutes, 10 minutes, I kid you not, she says, I just, I can't even see it anymore. She said, this is tripping me out, Rebecca. I don't know if I believe it, but I'm not sweating. I feel calm. And she is one that I've I've really taught the, the three circuits to. So we've mapped out her circuits. We've explored those. And she uses that language all the time. And so her ventral circuit is called dream. She feels kind of like dreamy, like everything's very nostalgic there, right? And so she said, I feel like I'm in dreamland. 10 minutes ago, I was in, I won't use her language for that one because it involves some curse words, but she was in more of that sympathetic state. And so she herself could even notice and reflect on, oh my gosh, I don't feel this anymore in 10 minutes. So there was just a beautiful integration of polyvagal theory and EMDR to help her in 10 minutes. It was all a car accident from two weeks ago that has been keeping her up at night. That's that's fantastic. And one of the things that uh, I just, a couple of things to grab on there that I'll highlight and just my things is, is the is the idea of theory, the idea of methodology, the idea of, of background. And I was some, uh, I'm doing a lot of work on that sort of framework as well. And uh, it was a lovely guy, William Stiles, who's done work in uh, responsiveness, which is my thesis at the moment. And, uh, but he's saying, how we individuals, how can we individualize our generalized knowledge? And uh, so not only are you finding individual frameworks, but what I really want to uh, respond to and highlight to everyone listening, I'm sure everyone heard it, but that the individual client uh, is given the freedom to create their own language, their own um, personal uh, uh, resonance and attunement. So it's you are tuning with the client, uh, you were tuning with yourself, and the client are tuning with themselves. This is uh, this is an enormously uh, beautiful, uh, beautiful sounding process. Thank yeah. you. How much in terms of um, sort of neuro 
um, biology do you give clients? Do you do a lot of sort of education in that in that cognitive space, um, or do you just sort of let's just get into therapy and I'll explain along the way? How, how do you work in that respect? Because people can get quite intimidated by the language of you know neurobiology. They really can. Uh, you'll certainly lose a client's interest pretty quickly if you go too deep too fast. Because if we think about polyvagal theory, all of a sudden you're sitting here. This therapist is talking to you kind of over your head, perhaps. It may trigger feelings of being inadequate or dumb or not knowing enough or, you know, something's wrong with me because I can't keep up with this. And those are cues of danger to your client. Oh my gosh, this person talks over my head. I don't understand this. This doesn't resonate with me. I didn't come to talk about my nervous system even though that's what we do in therapy. I'm going, to heal, I'm going to help you heal your nervous system. That's that's what we do as therapists. And so if that's a cue of danger, then your client probably is not going to come back. Now, some clients love that stuff and that's a cue of safety for them. Wow, you're giving me so much context. You're giving me so much information. I am so curious. And so that's one piece that I really track with my client and sometimes I just ask them, how much would you like me to explain some of the things that we're doing? And, you know, how much would you like me to not? And even there, polyvagal theory is about offering choice and context. And so when I give people choice, would you like me to explain this further or is this enough for you? They're telling me what they need instead of me making an assumption. If I have clients coming in the door and I find that they're asking me a lot of questions, you find that this client's really curious. Oh, I'm probably going to be more inclined to give them more information because I see what that does to their nervous system. So I think that's really the piece to track is how does your client's individual neurobiology respond to information and education? How much context do they need? And give them choice in the process as well. Just with the client I was talking about today, you know, we had a couple of moments where I just offered her choice. Here, here are your options, like a like a menu. I said, so with this car accident, we could do some EMDR, we could do some CBT, we could just talk about it. What feels most appealing to you? And she said, I want to do EMDR. At one point at the end of our EMDR work, we went on to a second target. We cleared out that first one, got to a second one. At one point, she was saying, I'm starting to get a headache. And I said, what would you like to do? Does this feel like the place to stop? Or does it at all feel like it might be related to what we're working on and you want to go? You want to keep going? She said, I want to keep going. So we did two more sets and her headache went. And just that piece, I find at least for therapists in the States, sometimes we have this belief that you have to know the answer. You need to know what to do. And we forget, why don't you ask your client? They have a sense, and yeah. usually they do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. This is this is a huge, huge part of uh, of um, what I think everybody's doing. But what we need to do is we need to go back and start making this a fundamental aspect of our our, our learning. But I, and I, I, what you're talking about there is that you individualize uh, the the framework of when you're working with them in the in the space. The difficulty with the book, of course, is that it's there. You don't know who's reading it. But sometimes I think people don't under, uh, realize, particularly with the sorts of books that, that that you're writing, that even though, and I notice in yours, the first few chapters are, are laying down some of this theoretical framework. They talk about polyvagal, you talk about neuro, uh, neuro-based uh, work. But actually a reader can also um, 
they don't have to follow the chapters necessarily. They can go in a little bit and say, oh, I don't understand that. And then, oh, I want to know more. And they can build up that that interest. So uh, it seemed to me as I was reading it, sometimes uh, I would go, I'd look at a little bit in the beginning. And I'm going, oh, yeah, 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 I know all that. And then I'd flip up forward and get some of the practical applications. And you was, then you'd say something, I'd say, oh, I'm not quite sure what you're meaning there. So I just went back. And then I sort of re-got back into those early chapters. Oh, I see. Yes, that's I see what the context is. So I founded a book that I could move around. Does that sound comfortable? Are you comfortable as the author with me doing that? I love hearing that because I feel it just parallels and mirrors our neurobiology. I mean, who really reads a book from front to back anymore these days? I don't know if you're like me. I just put them under my pillow and hope I absorb them in my sleep. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if, you, if that's how it worked for you, I am so grateful to hear it worked for you in that fluid way because that's how we learn. We're fluid learners. Uh, so I didn't write it necessarily with that intention, but that just made my day, Richard. <laughs> Now the book uh, uh, I've just said has got several several elements, but it's actually it's got kind of a two part framework. There's this underpinning, this foundational framework, the first five or six chapters, going through the building up your understanding of uh, of what the uh, EMDR is, what sort of reprocessing, what some of those aspects are all about. Then the second part of the book is really the therapist. Um, methodology type of thing where you you then go through the nature of of the way in which EMDR is done. How are you doing that differently? What what is the the idiosyncratic Rebecca Rees that you've added? Because uh, and I'm a great uh, lover of Milton Erickson who who said, for goodness sake, don't do it the way I do it. Do it the way you do it. And as my uh, mentor Ernie Rossi said, he said, uh, uh, do it better. Um, what uh, what were your feelings about being an author of this of this thing, which is uh, uh, aligned with Francine Shapiro, uh, who sadly has passed? So we need to, to we need to move her legacy forward, don't we? Mm, yes, yes, I think so. I think a couple of of important takeaways that that I. Uh, include in the book. So certainly, like you said, Richard, the first couple of chapters are really building a foundational conceptual framework for polyvagal theory. So if you come into the book and you're already, I'm a polyvagal theory expert, you can skim ahead and jump through some of those foundational foundational components. And then go back when you realize you didn't know so much <laughs> as you thought. Yes, that's I right. yes. I there's a there's a chapter that I, I think is really important, and it kind of exists between the polyvagal and EMDR world. It's something that is talked about somewhat in polyvagal theory and a tiny bit in EMDR, but I don't feel as emphasized enough, and that is the therapeutic relationship. So as I've talked about, the interpersonal process. There's a chapter on therapeutic presence which therapeutic presence is a concept defined by Geller and Greenberg. And it means that you are present as a therapist with your entire being, with your entire mind, body, and spirit when you're with your clients. Now, as I was writing the book, there were so many points that I felt, do I really need to say this? The sky is blue. Do I need to say that? Is that really important? But therapeutic presence, it feels like one of those, do I really need to say this? But within the context of EMDR, I felt that I really did. Because while we all know 
that the therapeutic relationship is the most important variable for clinical outcomes, for good clinical outcomes, the therapeutic relationship gets very little attention in the EMDR world. It's kind of an afterthought in Francine's text. She mentions it a couple of times, but there's no information or guidance in Francine's text of what does the therapeutic relationship look like within EMDR therapy? And because of that, I find that clinicians sometimes get stuck in this place of feeling that EMDR is something that I do to a client and I kind of leave the room. I'm not really present because EMDR is not talk therapy. So you're not engaged in the same way as you normally are with clients. And that really throws therapists for a loop when you don't offer. So you don't leave the room, but this is how you show up differently. And if there is one chapter of the book I could emphasize the most for EMDR therapists, I think that would be it. Because as an EMDR consultant, I have watched hundreds of videos of therapists practicing EMDR. It's something that I require when people are getting certified and becoming consultants. And over and over and over again, the most common thing I find that people are missing is not being warm and compassionate and interpersonally focused within EMDR therapy because they feel like I'm supposed to just stay out of the way. I'm not supposed to be engaged too much because that could direct the client in a way that, you know, maybe their nervous system doesn't need to be directed. And when I give people the feedback, you got to warm it up. This is how you warm it up. Every time they come back and they say, well, that was a game changer. Everything is different now. And so that chapter of the book really focuses on as an EMDR therapist, you don't leave the room, but you move from being an active doer, providing interventions, having to cognitively track everything, provide reframes and reflections and interpretations to an active kind of space holder. You're an active observer. And that's where polyvagal theory really helps inform us. Well, what does that look like? How do you actively attune with somebody when it's not in these lengthy, robust paraphrases and reflections. And it's, it's about your physiology, what you do with your body. Oh, it's so uh, I loved that thing there, the, the confusion that people have. How do I get out of the way uh, but stay engaged? And I think that's one of the greatest uh, misunderstandings of getting out of the way of the um, uh, of the client's processing, the client's work, is not to disengage. It's actually to stay engaged. And actually, I come from a lot of areas. I come from a theatrical area and various things. And to play a character who is uh, mute um, uh, uh, has I've, I've I've done this, and to actually have an entire engagement with someone without any ability to add speech or 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 those sorts of aspects was an enormous learning experience because how to be engaged with somebody without actually being proactive and intervening uh so I, that's what we'll do we'll get all therapists to go out and do you know a series of plays in, in that sort of framework but that's that's my big takeaway from that that you can be out of the way respectful and uh, and still beautifully and perfectly engaged with your clients. Uh, so uh, and thank there's, you there's so lots much of techniques, for that. Lots of techniques that, you know, that would apply to, you know, we've got different like, uh, you know, different sort of tapping techniques, um, brain spotting and and all, mm -hmm. all, which, you know, we can all be guilty of the same sort of thing of not, not, every, not being present. 
in the room. So that is brilliant. So now we've so we're doing that and we're looking at that that beautiful engagement uh, that's going on. And you bring that up to remind the the therapist that they're not doing mechanical acts, which is just fantastic. I mean, it is one of the problems that sometimes uh, I've also seen. So I I resonated with what you were saying. People will say, uh, think that thought, follow the eye things, think that thought, follow the thing. And it's just a matter of sensitivity is is what I'm Mm -hmm. hearing. It's really, and it's almost in your tone of voice, and this is the curiosity um, aspect of, uh, of I wonder, I'm wondering what their experience and enjoying uh, their experience. We had a lovely fellow who talked about being delighted in ourselves is a wonderful thing, but being delighted in somebody else's delight uh, with themselves is just a mood that we that we pro- progress across. So as you then go through the book, talking about these practical aspects, I'm imagining you want the the therapist reading these to bear that in mind that all your all your language, all your processes, all your steps uh, have this humanistic uh, uh, motivation or intention. Did you, I mean, I think you did it really well. What were you thinking as you, when you were writing it as how do I make this sound uh, humanistic even though there's a certain amount of mechanism to it? Oh, that's a good question. That's a tough one. Um, okay, to be completely frank and candid, it that was a really hard process because the way that I wanted to go about doing that was writing from more of my authentic tone of voice, which is not always so invited in an academic text. So <laughs> I tried to write this academic text for therapists in a way that wouldn't cause people to go cross-eyed and light the book on fire and say, oh, here's another book in neurobiology that I have to look up every other word. It, it was a real conundrum for my nervous system because I wanted to write in this very interpersonal way, but that's not really accepted in the academic world. And I got some feedback from my publisher you got to shift your tone of voice a little bit. So I shifted a little bit, but I, I tried still to not go too far to the opposite end of the spectrum where I just sounded like a researcher because I'm not a researcher. I, I'm not, I don't, I don't do research. I read a lot of research, but that's not my tone of voice. So I tried to write the book in a, here's some information and here's some little puns and jokes to add in there, and here's my real experience, and here's a little bit of conversational language blended in. So I tried to infuse just my social engagement system within the pages, and and that's really tricky. And even writing that, I was just noticing my nervous system get activated along the way. You do something, you challenge yourself, and your imposter syndrome is probably going to poke their head up and say, oh, hello, I'm still alive. Here I am. And when you write an academic text and kind of stick your neck out there in the EMDR world and say, oh, I have some thoughts of how we might make some revisions here or change this a little bit, that brought up a lot of vulnerability for me. And so as I was writing the book, I was just noticing my circuits getting activated. Okay, I'm in my ventral circuit, but now I'm feeling a little bit sympathetic. Oh, and here comes dorsal. And here's my imposter who kind of lives in both states. And and it was it made moments writing the book to be 
uh, very confusing, I will say, in my own neurobiology. <laughs> what am I saying it? And am I saying it in the right way? And is anybody going to take me seriously? <laughs> uh, hopefully it resonates. <laughs> now, now that you have struck the tone, uh, you, you've, you've found the balance, what's the feedback that you've been getting from, from colleagues? The feedback I've gotten is, I love how you write. It's just so relatable. So I just feel, whew, I did it. And if some big academic who is a researcher says, I don't care for the tone of your voice in your book, I'll say, well, I didn't write it for you. I wrote it for people who just want to know, how can I be a better therapist? I'm looking for new skills to help my clients heal. And can you teach me how to do that without activating me and making me feel stupid? So but, that's what I've gotten. <laughs> and but that is actually, if uh, and I, I just actually recommend our listeners just to go back and listen to that piece again, just rewind and go through because you just took us through a beautiful uh, experience of self uh, awareness, self regulation, and contextual framing, um, and arriving at a point where you are comfortable being you. And it was actually a beautiful description. It could have been of you talking uh, about your client who was a writer who had these problems and how you worked them through and walked them through and allowed them to enjoy their vulnerabilities and their 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 their, their difficulties and their senses of, of uh, incapacity. And then how you also allowed yourself to take ownership of the fact of my capacities are my capacities. Uh, and uh, and I can't be at the measure of other people. And what a beautiful comment to that person who uh, who sort of says, uh, well, I don't think you've done that well. And I said, well, clearly I haven't written the book for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is such a, a gentle, uh, uh, a kind way of allowing them to have their uh, opinion but for you to stay stable, it was a wonderful uh, uh, walk through um, the joys of, of self uh, self regulation. So thank you very much for that. Thank you for that uh, reflection. And and I'm going to remember that response when someone says that they don't like our book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Was written for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, you, you can imagine our frustration when we're writing the chapter on genetics. <laughs> yeah, we kind of we kind of made it a bit personal-ish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we did. <laughs> we did ish. Well, uh, that's my story. The now we, we're going through. We we do have time constraints because um, the people like to listen to us for about forty minutes or so, and then they go off and you know have another cup of something elsewhere. So we're getting to that sort of time. Just make one final note, and that is the last chapter of the book is is about embodiment, and again along these lines of interpersonal neurobiology and the importance of the therapeutic relationship. That last chapter really is kind of a call to action for all of us in the field to rise up and value the importance of becoming our message. That is one of Gandhi's quotes, be your message. And I think that that is so important for the field of psychology, for the field of healing, that we have to walk the walk and talk the talk. And that's too often not the case. I think that we often have mentors or supervisors or people in positions of power and expertise 
who aren't really embodying what we know to be true from neuroscience. And I really believe that it all starts with you, of your ability to self-reflect, self-correct, to embody and embrace the knowledge that you are trying to impress and share with your clients. Because if, if you can't embody it, how can you possibly share it with anyone else? Thank you so much for sharing uh, those those last thoughts. I think there's another rewind thing there. I'm, I'm quite touched by all that. Um, and all those things you've talked about, all those wonderful gifts you've given us and beautiful takeaways, uh, we just uh, hope that, that that we see a lot more and, and connect with you in many more times because you've got such a, a lot to offer. Thank you very much, Rebecca. I'm still got a breath or two about that little wrap up that Rebecca mm. did that, mm. that was um it's this humanity uh I'm actually doing a little bit of research and work at the moment on on humanism sort of the 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 Maslow hierarchy right. and then the humanistic approaches that emerged out of that and uh and I think this is something that Rebecca uh, just embodied so beautifully. You know, I, I want to be a human being experience with another human being. It uh, it's really very rich and beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I love the way that she fr- she framed. You know, I'm using my nervous system to heal. You know, another nervous system. You know, that's 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 beautiful. And yeah, yeah. Be, be be your message. Yeah, yeah that's co-regulation. It, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that co-regulation. So anyway. Uh, that's great. Everybody jump over, uh, check out, go to go see her website, go and buy that book. That's uh, fabulous. There's, there's, it's now, great. We'll, we'll have an article, won't we? And we're going to have a chapter in the in the uh, in the next issue. I don't know when that is. I think that's August. Yes, that's right. We're in July, <laughs> uh, so we'll have a chapter in there that'll give you some some beautiful insights uh, yeah. into into what she's doing at the, the foundation. So uh, yeah, I I really, I really loved all that stuff. All right, fantastic. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us here at the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. And if you do want to check out that chapter, jump across to thescienceofpsychotherapy.net and um, check out our August edition of the Science of Psychotherapy. Yeah, it, it, it's fabulous. And there's some uh, there's some other really good things in there. Uh, I'm actually doing a, 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 an article on consciousness, which is really oh. interesting, talking about we just had the consciousness um, uh, conference in uh, Joseph Ledoux, who's the president of that uh, association. So lots of interesting stuff. Um, but for now, Matt, I think we've we've done our dash and we've spent, mm-hmm. our, uh, uh, spent our time very wisely. I hope everyone's enjoyed this experience. Fantastic. Thank you, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.